We thank the Lord for His wonderful mercies and His generosity in our lives so that we can, even in fact, celebrate Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving, you will be inviting your friends, but in doing so, you'll be considering also that your friends have their preferences. Some people have you know, allergies, allergies from crustaceans, from shrimps, some from chicken. They, I heard that before that if you want to kill the Americans, just give them peanuts. Because there are so many people are allergic to peanuts. I used to volunteer in school, in my son's school back in Arizona. And there's a separate towel to, to wipe the table because some kids are allergic to peanuts and they take it very seriously. But there are others, but there are others, other kids also that are not just allergic. They're just picky. Say, for example, my, my daughter, she's uh, four years old. She's very picky. When we cook pasta, she just wants the white noodle and the sauce. She doesn't want the olives, the capers, the chunk of, um, of tomatoes. She just wants the noodle and the sauce. That's it. Some people are picky. But you know in the Bible that the Israelites are commanded to be picky? Yes. So you read Leviticus 12, 13, and 14, and you will read that from this text, that God is commanding the Israelites to be picky with their food. And there's a good reason why. But there's a very interesting and weird passage back in Exodus chapter 22, where God is telling these Israelites who must be picky with their food to be very picky in terms of the meat they eat. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 22, verse 31. This is a very short passage. It says, You shall consecrate to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So that means any meat that is torn by beasts or that is killed by beasts or any carcass in the field that is torn by beasts, the Israelites are not permitted to eat. They have to be picky. For a very simple reason, the Bible said, you are consecrated to me. So what does consecration mean? Consecration has something to do with other words for consecration is ordination or separation. So for the next three Sundays, we will be talking about priesthood and their functions in the sacred space. But today, I want to talk to you about the ritual of consecration. What is consecration? And if you listen carefully, I promise you that as much as I'll be talking about the Old Testament, I will actually be talking about you. So if you will be asking, Pastor, if this is about priesthood and consecration, and I'm not a priest, why is it relevant to me? Well, the thing is, you may not believe it, but you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have devoted your life to Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, listen to me, you are a priest of God. You may not be wearing the, you know, the, the gowns of the priests. You might be, be wearing the clerical collars of the priests. But the Bible said that you are a priest of God. And in this sermon, I'm going to prove it to you. Let me backtrack a little bit. There are certain accepted ceremonies that we go through in life. Say, for example, graduation. Every one of us graduated, except, of course, for those kids who are still students. Or weddings or uh, an induction, if you are part of a special group. The rituals, of, the rituals that I mentioned are formalities but necessary because they bring us to transition from one status to another. It doesn't change us but it changes our transition. It changes our status. 
when you graduate, you go through a ceremony, and in the ceremony, there will be this ritual where the school will proclaim that you are now ready to be in a profession that you chose. That's why it's called graduation. You graduated from the studies, you're now ready to, to do your profession. And the same thing with weddings. In, in a wedding ceremony, the priest or the pastor declares in public at the very end of the ceremony that you are no longer single, and they will say, for the first time, let me present to you Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so. So that means nothing changed, but you change your status. That change. The Bible talks about a different kind of transition, a transition from being common, ordinary person to becoming a priest of God. So this is all about consecration. And believe me, you are consecrated, and therefore you are a priest of God. Again, if you're a Christian, if you're a devoted follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you may think of yourself as someone ordinary, but the Bible looks at you and presents you as a priest of God. Let me begin with Leviticus chapter 8. In Leviticus chapter 8, Moses told Aaron to bring his sons, bring the assembly of the people in front of the tent of the tabernacle, and to conduct this ceremony of consecration. Now, this consecration ritual is very important because this will separate Aaron and his sons from the rest of the people of Israel. And this ritual may sound weird, but in the ancient world, they resonated with them. They understood perfectly every nuance, every detail of the ritual. But to us, if we read this today, it may sound weird or look weird. Why are these blood important? Why this you know, ritual important? But to the ancient people, they understood perfectly. So let me read to you Leviticus chapter 8, beginning from verses 1 through 4. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing of oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the meeting. Now, the first two verses has something to do with the offerings. They have to present a bull and rams and unleavened bread. Now, if you notice carefully that we talked about them in the early uh, last month in our earlier series, it's all about the offerings of God. If you've been reading the book of Leviticus, um, we preached it last week. Moses summons the people. This is like a town hall meeting where everyone is invited, like, you know, like any wedding, everyone is invited to see the ordination of Aaron and his priests. But the question is, why is this important? Why does Moses have to ordain Aaron and his sons? Here's the reason why. Because Israel was called from Egypt for a purpose of mediating for the world. Of all the nations in the world, it's not the Filipinos who were called by God. It was the Israelites, the Jews today. They were called from slavery to freedom. And, and you might be thinking that the reason why God called them, God freed them from slavery, is just because God is generous. That's not true. There's a reason why, there's a purpose why God freed them from slavery. There's a price tag for that freedom. Let me read to you Exodus 19. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Now if you obey me fully, he was talking to the Israelites, and keep my covenant, 
there's an agreement between God and His people, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine. Now I wish it would be Filipinos, but it's not. It's the Israelites. He said, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The calling of the Israelites is very special. They are called to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that Moses was supposed to speak to the Israelites. And only the Israelites had this privilege and this calling. They were the only group of people among all the peoples of the earth to receive this mandate, priests of God. So you may be thinking, Pastor, it's not me. It's just the Israelites, the Jews today. What has this got to do with me? It's all got to do with you. Why is there a need for a priest? Why do we need priests in the first place? Now, for this simple reason, because without priests, we continue to sin, and if we continue to sin, there was no one to mediate us, and therefore, if no one will mediate for us, we will be punished for our sins. Without priests, there's no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there's punishment, and the punishment is guaranteed. Death is the punishment that the Bible talks about. See, the moment Adam and Eve lost their access in the Garden of Eden, they were kicked out from the Garden of Eden, we as a people, the whole world, are doomed to die because of this. And so we need someone to advocate for us. We need an intermediary. We need some people to speak for God, for us. We need someone who can bring us into the sacred space and ask God and plead for God to forgive us of our sins. Now think about the sun. There's no way you can look at the sun directly for a minute. Anyone want to try that? You're going to go blind, right? You need sunglasses. So the, more, the darker the Ray-Bans, no, the darker the sunglasses, the darker the sunglasses, the better, because you can look at the sun. But then not really straight for for a long period of time. It is this thing in between our eyes and the sun that protects our eyes from the intensity of the light. But at the same time, we need the sun for the light. We need it. The holiness of God is the same. So consider God as the sun. He's holy. It emanates. The light is here. But you cannot directly look at God or else you will die. You will go blind. See, the people of God in the tabernacle, in the sacred space, they cannot enter the temple by themselves. They need someone who is authorized to enter the temple. So the sunglasses are like the priests. They're the only ones who are authorized to enter the most holy place because God authorized them. If any ordinary person tries to enter the most holy place, they will definitely die. They cannot stay in the presence of the holiness of God. The priests are designed as a buffer for God and the people. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 5. This is the ritual ceremony. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. The first step to the ceremony of consecration is water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of ephod around him, binding it to him with a band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. This is the, the 
the thing that they used to determine the will of the Lord, the Urim and the Thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded. Now, if you're looking at, if you're looking at the high priest right now, we have that thing on the screen. The fashion trend may not be to your liking. It's not Versace-designed you know, fashion. But the whole idea of this fashion for the priest is that it separates Aaron from the rest of the people. He's the only one who has this kind of vestments. Everything that he wears, he wears only inside the tabernacle. When he goes out of the tabernacle, he wears ordinary clothes. This is a very special uniform for him. Now, it's the same thing when you go to a hospital. You can easily spot the nurses from the doctors, from the maintenance people. The doctors wear differently. The nurses wear differently. The maintenance crew wear differently. When you go to a tabernacle, the priests wear differently from the high priest. This is very unique to the high priest. From head to toe, he has to be different. But the first step was washing with water. Now, Moses would have likely washed not the whole body, but only the head and the feet, or only the hands and the feet, rather. Because the high priest will be walking on sacred ground, and he will be touching sacred objects. Therefore, his hands and his feet must be clean. Now, if you're thinking about this literally, it's not. It's symbolic. It's about spiritual cleanliness. But notice in particular, Aaron's breast piece. It contains 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The question is why? Why does he wear them? The answer is in Exodus 28. It says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. It doesn't mean God forgets. It just means he carries the whole 12 tribes of Israel in his body, in his heart. And it says, Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. When I was preparing this sermon, I cannot help but be afraid of Aaron. Because this passage meant that he would be carrying the sins of the people. It says, judgment on his heart. That means every time he walks into the most holy place, he wears the 12 gemstones on his breast. He's wearing judgment on himself. He's carrying the sins of the people. That's what it meant to be a priest for God. You are a mediator, an intermediary. And that means every minute of his life inside a tabernacle is a potential danger. Imagine him carrying toxic material and flammable material near the fire. Anytime it can ignite. Anytime he can die inside the tabernacle. But it is his job to carry the sins of the people before God, so that God will look at the, upon the people and forgive them of their sins. That means every minute he's inside the tabernacle, he's risking his life for the people. He carries the judgment on himself. Look again at verse 29. This is very interesting. Exodus 28, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel. Bear the names. He shall bear the names. The Hebrew word for bear is nasah. He can... It can also mean bear or take or carry. So bear, carry, or take. But that means when Aaron enters the sacred space, he represents the 12 tribes of Israel by bearing them on his breast piece. He's literally carrying them, the people. Nasa, very interestingly, 
was also used in the Ten Commandments, in the Third Commandment. You remember the Third Commandment? You shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain, or you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, or you shall not carry the name of the Lord in vain. Nasa. What it means is you shall not represent the name of the Lord in vain. It is not just for the Israelites, it's also for us. Christians, we have a calling no other people group have. We represent none other God himself. So technically, we are bearing the name of God. What are you called? We're called Christians. We are bearing the name of Christ in us. You are first a Christian before anything else. You see, when we go to heaven and to be with God, there will be no more names. There will be no more pet names. It will be Christians. We represent the name of God. This is the reason why the church is called to be the salt and the light of the world, to be separate from the world, not to love the world, not to conform to the world, but to be against the world. See, the church is supposed to be counterculture. What does it mean to be counterculture? We're not supposed to follow the trends of the world. The world is meant to be counterculture. So when, when the world normalizes the killing of babies, we have to go counterculture. If the, the world is normalizing pedophilia, we have to go counterculture. If, if the world is normalizing the killing of a certain people, like the Jews, we have to go counterculture. We are not meant to celebrate death and evil every Halloween. Why is that? Because the world is meant to look up to us for light and direction, for salt and preservation. We are the church. We are the salt and light of the world. It shouldn't be the other way around. Our duty is to represent Christ to the world. And listen, we cannot do that if we ourselves are deep in compromises. There are two reasons why I cannot speak of evil or against evil. Either we are afraid that people will retaliate and we will get hurt, or that because we are guilty ourselves. Either of those things can be true. That's why we cannot speak of evil. That's why we stay silent. Now, I understand why we're afraid. We are afraid to get hurt. But there's a reason why Jesus repeatedly told his disciples not to be afraid. He knew the moment he ascends to heaven, the enemy will gang up on his church and so he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ himself is giving us a guarantee not to be afraid because he's with us. The gates of hell, the attack of the enemy will not prevail. You know where he, where he was when he was saying that? He was in Caesarea Philippi. In Caesarea Philippi, you, you can still go today and you will find this enormous cave this cave was known to be the gates of the underworld. This is very popular in Caesarea Philippi in north, uh, northeast of Jerusalem. The Bible said that Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi when he was speaking these words. Jesus was probably standing at the mouth of this cave telling his disciples that the enemy can't win against the church. Upon this rock, he was talking about that cave, that big rock, that big mountain. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, will not win. The church is protected by God. But let me clarify what kind of promise did Jesus make? Did Jesus promise victory? Absolutely. Did Jesus promise invincibility? Never. You don't go, you don't go to any, any, any place 
or any situation where you will be caught in an accident and say, God will protect me. Jesus never promised invincibility. In fact, the Bible said that you will suffer tribulations and persecutions and people will hurt you and people will dishonor you. We are not invincible. Did, promise, did Jesus promise that? Nope. Did Jesus promise that your life will be without struggle? No. Did Jesus promise that you will never have any financial problem? No. Did he promise that you will never be sad or lonely or brokenhearted or depressed? The answer is no. You will not find those in the Bible. His promise is against victory against the enemy. That was the promise. And when I talk about enemies, I'm not talking about your husband. I'm talking about the real enemy, the spiritual evil enemy. Now, sometimes couples, I understand, we look at each other when we fight as, you know, you're the evil one. No, we're not. They're not the enemies. The enemy is the real spiritual evil one. The spiritual struggle is against the evil one. His promise to you and I, no, ma- no matter how, what we go through in life, is that God will never abandon us. That is the promise of God. Now, Christians who are serious with their faith, according to the Bible, will be persecuted. It's something that we can expect. It's something that we can anticipate within our lifetime. Let me read to you 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. This is guaranteed. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We understand that. When we encounter Jesus, when we accepted him by faith, we understand there are risks. And one of the risks is to be persecuted by the world, to be dishonored by the world, to be talked against by the world, not to be liked. The Bible says so. Because to be in light, to be the truth, the world will go against. There's no going around this. You know, we saw it happen during the COVID. Christians are persecuted. Churches are closed. We are persecuted. We also happened, we saw this happen during the Black Lives Matter movement. We are persecuted because we don't go with them or their philosophy in life. Even the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, is now targeted for his faith. You know that the new House Speaker is a Christian and he talks very much seriously about his faith. But, but the media now is targeting him. They don't like him because of his faith. They call him radical, radical right. You see, at some point, people will ask about your faith. People will question your belief. People will attack you for your belief. But listen, Jesus said, Blessed are you if people persecute you for my name's sake. We are blessed if we are doing this. We are blessed if we are persecuted. That means if you've been living a pretty good life, without any persecution, without any opposition from anyone, you have to question your life. Because it's guaranteed, if you are living seriously about your life, and people know about your faith, you will be persecuted one way or another. In the ceremony, you will also find that there are a series of animal sacrifices. And then, there's this very important thing called anointing. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 30. It says that then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. 
And so he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his garments with him. Now, what in the world is that? What in the world is this consecration? Now, we understand that when somebody pours an oil on someone, it's called anointing. Anointing with oil. Oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit. But what about the blood? What happens when a blood is sprinkled on someone? Is it also called anointing? Why sprinkle the blood on Aaron and his sons? Now, if you remember correctly, when the Israelites met Yahweh for the first time at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, Moses read to them the book of the covenant to the entire congregation. And it was like a wedding ceremony. There was an exchange of ring. And instead of ring, there was an exchange of blood. See, the covenant in the ancient world is about blood, not rings. It's about blood. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 7 says, And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. That's the response of the people. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The sprinkling of the blood is like the exchange of the ring in the ceremony. In the case of the Israelites, the exchange of blood, sorry, the sprinkling of blood is like saying, you know, I get this ring, I put it in my finger and say, I do. That's why they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. That is their I do. The token of their covenant with God, the ring, is the blood sprinkled on them. It's kind of weird because we don't do it today. But in the ancient times, they do it. It is, it is their way of saying, we understand every risk that is, that is read in the covenant. We understand that if we do not obey, we are liable to be punished by God. And we understand that if we are liable to be punished by God, there's only one punishment, that is death. They understood. This is the reason why none of the Israelites, except Joshua and Caleb, entered the promised land. All the first generation died in the wilderness because they rebelled against God. Numbers chapter 6. The last step of the ceremony was to remain inside the sacred space. It's kind of weird. It's like, you know, COVID days, you're isolated in quarantine, you cannot go out. This happened to the sons of Aaron and Aaron himself. Leviticus 8.35. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days. <laughs> They're quarantined for seven days. Performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Now, this is kind of weird, I said, because it only happened when we were quarantined during the COVID times. But the consecration of the priest was one week, seven days. They have to complete it. It's not just one day ceremony, an hour, and that, that's good enough. It has to be seven days, because seven in the Old Testament always symbolizes completeness. There's no explanation why they had to remain there for seven days there was no explanation why they will die or how will they will die it just says that they will die if they get out from the sacred space before seven days kind of reminds me of the forbidden fruit in the garden of eden god said the moment you eat it you will die period no explanation given nothing it just uh, even a bite there was no explanation how will they die? There's no explanation. In, in, this, 
in this uh, instance, there was also no explanation. But I suppose that this is a test of faith, just like in the Garden of Eden. See, the, the apple, if it's an apple, is a test of faith of their utter obedience to God. You cannot break anything. The priest and the sons of this high priest must be willing to obey God to the letter, to the detail. If they are to be called holy priests, consecrated before God, they have to live a life of calling. They're separated. The moment they transition to the seven days, they're not common people anymore. Just like you, you were single, and then you wed, you got married. E even that two-hour wedding changes your status. You become Mr. and Mrs. So these priests have changed their status after seven days. And there's a, a very strong warning. Do not leave or else you will die. Now, question now is, what is this consecration all about? How is this related to Jesus? How is this related to me? We understand that the priests have to go through all this. How does this ritual help me with my faith today? Now, Apostle Paul is, is very clear on this one. I'm going to give you three things. Number one, Apostle Paul said that anything that has to do with the Old Testament is our heritage. We may not be Jews by blood, but we are Jews spiritually. That's very clear in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Second, our faith is patterned after the Old Testament rituals. Everything that they do in the Old Testament, we also do, but we tweaked it in a different way. Number, number three, Apostle Peter calls the church priesthood of believers. This is interesting. Apostle Peter himself, the one closest to Jesus, the one that's been given the keys to the kingdom of, of heaven, said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that the church is a holy priesthood. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 says, Jesus is our high priest of the church. Now, this begs the question, if we are priests, when did we become priests? Did I miss the ordination? Did I miss the consecration? When was the ritual? Now, you'll be surprised. See, the first thing that Moses did, again, was to wash Aaron and his sons. You know what Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry? He went to the Jordan River, he went to John the Baptist, and got baptized. It's washing. Are you getting it? So Jesus himself went to washing. And John the Baptist was like, no, 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 no. I think you should baptize me, not the other way around. Because he recognized Jesus. And instead, this is what Jesus said, Matthew 3.15. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because this ritual, although this is a simple ritual, it fulfills the process of righteousness. I'm going to take this time to encourage you. If you have not been baptized, I encourage you to take this. This ritual may not be important to you, but you have to go through the process because this is a process of initiation, of consecration. This is where you go through the water and come out, be baptized. Jesus went through this. This ritual is necessary for transition. See, there's a problem today with the world. And they just say that we, we, want, mar we want to be married, but we don't want to go through the ceremony. But we don't want to go through the hassle of going to the ceremony and spend a lot of money. So we just promise ourselves, you know, pinky swear, 
I'm going to be your husband, you're going to be my wife. That's not good enough. You have to go through the ceremony. Because in the ceremony, it is where God blesses you and your partner. In the same way with baptism, when you have committed your life to Jesus, you have to go through this process. It's where you publicly say, I'm now committing myself to Jesus. I'm publicly telling the people I have committed my life to Jesus. But not only that the high priests were also washed, it also the sons of Aaron were also washed. Now I'm, I'm, I'm transitioning from the Old Testament to Jesus Christ, to his disciples, to you. I want you to see the link of the transition. So the high priest was washed, Jesus was washed. What about his, his, uh, his disciples? What's interesting is that on the eve of the Passover, you know this, correct? There was a Lord's Supper. But the book of John tells us that before the Passover, in John chapter 13, Jesus took a basin of water, put a sash around his waist, a towel around his waist, and washed every disciple's feet, even the feet of Judas. What is this washing all about? It goes way back to Leviticus chapter 8, when Moses washed the sons of Aaron, consecrated them as priests. The twelve disciples were consecrated as priests to God. And Peter was like, no, 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 he will not wash my feet. He was like, you know, uh, not really that humble. You will not wash my feet. And this is what Jesus said, John 13, verse 8. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. I mean, you have to go through this ritual because this ritual consecrates the disciples. He was acting like Moses, washing his disciples' feet. So where do you think Peter got the idea that the Christians are the new priests? It's Jesus, Leviticus chapter 8. What about us? When did we become priests? When did Jesus wash our feet or wash us, our bodies? Could it be too simplistic to think that our initiation to faith was through water baptism? When you were baptized, you were washed to be consecrated by God. It's not just ritual. It's a necessary ceremony of consecration. Now, two weeks before the Passover, Jesus was having dinner with this woman, with, with his friends, and this woman came with a, a very expensive perfume. And the Bible said that she started pouring oil on the head of Jesus. What does it look like to you? It's called anointing. When oil is poured on the head, it's called anointing. And this woman did not know that she was anointing Jesus for his burial. See, the high priest in Leviticus 8 was anointed with oil. Jesus, too, was anointed with oil before he performed his last rite, before he was crucified on the cross. This woman did not know, but she was anointing Jesus. I want you to start looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, not just a public execution, but a ritual of consecration. You see, Aaron was given a special clothing, correct? We read that. He was given a robe, a tunic, and a crown, very particular. What did Jesus have the last minute of his death? He was clothed by the Roman soldiers with a purple robe. And then he was given a thorn of crowns. And then on his cross, on the cross himself, the Roman soldiers gambled so that they can get the tunic. Whoever wins will get his tunic. It was like a, a white robe. And see, all that happened to the high priest happened to Jesus Christ. But unlike Aaron, 
Jesus was not required to do a full day, seven day quarantine because his consecration started all the way back when he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Why is that? Why is his disciples are different? You know, after the resurrection, he rose from the dead. He gave one last instruction to his disciples. We're missing one piece. You know, Leviticus 8, the sons of Aaron were consecrated for seven days. They were isolated, quarantined. Where's the quarantining of the disciples? Here it is. Luke chapter 24, verse 48. Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he said, You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, that's the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from an eye. I mean, they were asked to stay, not to go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem until they finish the consecration. You see it. There's a link between Leviticus 8 all the way to Jesus and his disciples. And here's the trivia. You see, priests can only come from the line of Aaron. You find it in the Bible. Now here's the thing. The 12 disciples were never descendants of Aaron. Jesus Christ was not a Levite himself. But this new priesthood is different. This is a different kind of ordination for new priesthood. This new priesthood is so much better where the high priest doesn't die, where the high priest doesn't sin, where the high priest doesn't leave the Holy of Holies. He's permanently there. We're talking about Jesus Christ today. He's our high priest who is mediating before the Father for us. The reason why, have you ever thought, why is Jesus not there on earth? Would it have been better if Jesus was here and I can go to him and speak to him? He's not. Because he's doing a more important task. A high priest mediating before the Father for our, for our sins. You see, we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Every time we commit mistakes, Jesus tells the Father, I got discovered. I died for him. I have forgiven his sins. You see, Jesus established a new kind of priesthood with new sets of priests and with a new set of rituals. Now, I understand that when we talk about priests, we only think of, you know, special people like pastors and, and priests and, and shamans, maybe, or bishops. But the Bible gives us a better understanding of what a priest is. Every believer in Jesus Christ, every serious follower of Jesus Christ, every devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, regardless of your economic status, regardless of your educational attainment, regardless of your gender, you are considered priest of God. We are priests of God. I want you to start looking at yourself as a priest as an intermediary, someone who has access to the sacred space, someone who serves in the most holy place, someone who can go near to God without dying, without any fear, because you are authorized to go near to God. That is the task of a priest. Listen to the language of Leviticus chapter 10. This will, this will, this will cover Leviticus chapter 8. But Hebrews 10 repacks the language and tells Christians that we are priests of God in our function. He said, therefore, brothers and sisters. Did you know what? In the Old Testament, there are no sisters. There are no priest women. But here in the New Testament, priests are brothers and sisters. 
since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Hang on. In the Old Testament only, the high priest enters the most holy place. Once a year. And yet Hebrews 10 is telling us that we brothers and sisters can enter the most holy place with confidence. Why? Because we are the new priesthood. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the, holy priest, the high priest goes into the holy place. Once a year, he must carry the blood of a ram and he must sprinkle blood on the altar and on the Ark of the Covenant. You see, when we go, when we do this today, we don't have to kill an animal. We don't have to sacrifice any, any sheep or goats. All we have to do is to go straight to the throne of grace and carry with us the blood of Jesus Christ. We carry with us the blood of Jesus Christ because we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for us. And, since, and says, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus Christ, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that brings that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to clean us from a guilty conscience. Do you remember? The washing and the sprinkling, the anointing, and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, ever since Jesus died on the cross, ever since the curtain was torn into two, the veil was opened. The Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, the most holy place was opened for us so that we can enter the most holy place. The book of Hebrews is telling us there's a new kind of ritual that every priest must go through. Why? Because we are the new priest of God. And why are we authorized? Because our hearts and conscience have been sprinkled clean. Our bodies are washed with pure water. That's baptism. What, does, what the priest went through in Leviticus chapter 8, you also went through as Christians. That's what he's saying. You see, the most holy place has to be sprinkled blood every year, every Yom Kippur. The Ark of the Covenant must be sprinkled with blood every year. But it doesn't have to be anymore. Why? Because it's already clean. What must be sprinkled with blood is our hearts. Our hearts. Didn't the prophet Jeremiah say, the heart is deceitful above all else? Who can understand it? And some translations say, it is desperately sick. It is the hearts that needed cleansing. See, the truth is, people are dying, not of cancer, not of COVID. People are not, are not dying because of climate change. People are dying because of the sinful heart. That is the culprit. The Bible says, Jesus, our great high priest, sprinkled our conscience with his blood, not by the blood of sheep and goats, but by his own blood. He did that so we won't have to. See, even if we die and bring our blood to God, it's not acceptable. It's not clean. Only the blood of Jesus Christ is clean because He's perfect. He's sinless. It means you don't have to go to the temple to ask for forgiveness. That means you don't have to fall in line just what they did in the Old Testament because the priests are busy. That means you don't have to schedule an appointment in order to go to the temple. That means you don't have to fly all the way from here to Jerusalem in order to seek forgiveness from God. All you have to do is to have confidence to enter the most holy place through our prayer. 
We enter the holy place through our prayer. We meet with God through our prayer. That means you don't have to be afraid anytime you pray, anytime you make mistakes, anytime you sin. Because we have confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you are now a consecrated priest of God. You have direct access to God. Let me tell you this very straight. As much as you think that your prayer is not as good as the pastor's, it's not true. Your prayers has the same weight as mine. Your prayers has the same weight as any Christian, as any pastor, as any elder of the church. We have equal footing in God because we are all priests of God. We only have one high priest. That's Jesus Christ. So that means if you are priest of God, what really matters is not the eloquence of the words or not the length of your prayer. It's the sincerity of your heart. God doesn't listen to the eloquence. It doesn't mean if you stutter. It doesn't matter. What God listens to is the sincerity of your heart. And if you're a priest of God, come on, let's go in the house of God. Let's meet with God. We have confidence. We have Jesus Christ. Isn't it great? Let's celebrate our priesthood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the truths that is in your word, that we are your priests, that we have been consecrated for you, for your use. Father, allow us that our lives, our lips, our hands, our feet will always be devoted to holiness. Father, allow us, especially our hearts, with that sincerity every time we come to you. Allow us, Father, to always give what is due to you as priests. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of becoming your priests, giving us access to enter you, enter your holy throne. And as priests, Father, we pray that you will, you will use us to mediate for others, especially those who have not known you, people who have not bent their knee to Jesus Christ. Father, help us understand this. And we celebrate this day that we are your priests. In Jesus' name.